Tim Joyce. How you doing, buddy? That's right. I absolutely love it. Well, I've been home uh, for a couple of weeks. I was on the road, as you know, in uh, in most of March. Been home for a couple of weeks um, and then uh, heading off to uh, U.S. next week. It sounds like you're on the move, my friend. Yeah, and actually been without you, which is so difficult. I'm about to fire your butt. <laughs> Go ahead and stay friends. <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, I definitely miss you and miss discussing digital health with the real you um, and would love your thoughts on what's happening in this digital health space these days with all the investments. So Eugene, great to be contributing to the shot of digital health uh, this week. So in the digital health uh, atmosphere, what am I seeing right now? I think we're, it's, it's, it's wild times. I feel like I feel um, there's a real kind of process of digital health category and companies uh, becoming adults now. I think everyone's really still super excited about the category, um, but there's just tons of realism out there. Um, so I, I feel like there's just better discussions in digital health than ever before. Um, but there's also, um, there's a real feeling of of this category is kind of going through uh, a growing up phase. So, anyways, that's my my take on what's how I'm feeling about digital health for the week. Awesome. Well, and on this note, I'm gonna now let our guest in, um, Christian. Hello. Hi, Christian. Where are you? I'm at our office in San Mateo, California. Ah, hold on. I can't see you, though. Hold on, hold oh. on. Hold on, hold uh, on. Here you are. How so, are you now? Uh, perfect. I can see you. I uh, I love the background. Welcome to the shot. And as you can see, we have Jim Joyce, but the virtual version of him because he's <laughs> Um, and before I let you in, we actually did a little bit of recording. I've been messing around. It's been pretty fascinating to watch not just chat GPT, but, you know, things like Midjourney and others. I actually generated Jim Joyce, the, the fake Jim Joyce, not the real one. So he's going to sit and stare at us here. <laughs> um, and then at the end, he will be the one to ask you the question. So anyway, um, awesome. good, good to catch up today. Um, welcome to the shot, as I said, and for all of our millions of listeners and viewers, take us through your life journey. And uh, <laughs> we got time. We got time. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Eugene. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm Christian. Uh, I run time to see on founder of Merrill Health. And Merrill Health, we're an online mental health provider uh, providing holistic, integrative mental health care uh, across, across the United States in all states. And, um, yeah, maybe like, you know, before going into like more, more about Merrill Health per se, my personal story, like where am I coming from? So I'm from Finland originally, and uh, I started in computer science, uh, did my undergrad and graduate studies uh, in computer science um, and information systems, and then um, kind of ended up in healthcare through joining a, a, a clinical trials uh, data collection company that was a fast growing uh, startup back then. And then I worked there for a couple of years uh, for one of the founders and then um, actually uh, decided to quit and founded my first own company, which was a medical device company. 
So I started mm. off in diabetes, uh, glucose monitoring, medical devices. And, uh, and then, yeah, so that's kind of like my early years, uh, built that company, uh, built another business within that company, spun it off, uh, eventually sold the, um, the first business in 2015 to a Korean public company, and then uh, went into mental health care, founding Merrill Health in 2016. And uh, many people ask me, like, why did you go from uh, diabetes to mental health? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, I lost my oldest brother, Peter, to suicide because of uh, wow. his struggles with um, with mental health or, you know, with depression and, and with addiction. And, uh, you know, that just kind of made me think through, like, what do I want to do with my life? And, and uh, I really felt that after that first stint in diabetes, um, I wanted to move into mental health care. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I ended up here. Well, listen, you know, one one first of all, thank you for sharing that highly personal story. Uh, and I think a lot of us entrepreneurs in healthcare get into the specific healthcare, you know, companies and create these new products and services because of our own, you know, experiences. So again, thank you for that. But I I, I do want to rewind a little bit back, and you know, sort of, um, I think. Uh, and and this hopefully will also show individuals that while Finland is always um, listed as top uh, of the list of happy countries, um, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't mean that everybody is right. And that there are things that happen to individuals uh, through it. But um, I'm actually curious, um, you know, the, that dichotomy and maybe talk a little bit about why, why it does Finland show up uh, as one of the happiest countries? Yeah. Well, that's a funny thing. I mean, like, I think it's the sixth time in a row now uh, that that happened again. Um, so I think it's, it's, I don't think it's because Finland would be actually more happier on the upside than many other countries. I think as an example, other Nordic countries, uh, there's, you know, a lot of happy people there and there's a lot of happy people in other places. But I think one thing that is special in Finland is that there's, um, the downside is limited. Because in Finland, um, you know, there's pretty much no homeless people. There's government housing for everyone if you're like can't afford uh, afford a house. There's you know free healthcare for everyone. There's free education for everyone, tax paid. Yeah. So the downside is very limited, and there's very little uh, like strong. I mean, like uh, there's of course like some struggle and suffering in Finland as well, but there's like less of like extreme suffering and struggling going on in Finland. So I think that that's actually what's lifting the whole thing offers. Um, and that kind of like, so the, you know, elimination of a lot of that. Yeah, dire right. The stress points. Yeah, exactly. It's making things happier. So, and then, you know, I, I'd like to sort of keep moving along your journey. Uh, and I'm assuming when you, uh, when you went, uh, you started the diabetes company or, or joined a diabetes company, yeah. sorry, started, right? I was one of the one of the co-founders. One of the one of the co-founders. So I'm assuming in that time is when you met Sridhar, right? Who actually was under the yes. shot as well. Okay. Um, and um, I know uh, you guys both do some angel investments together and other things. So you know those those yeah. solutions go way back. Now, what what made you go into diabetes care then back in the day? Like, what was the trigger there? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. So. One of my buddies, um, he's a diabetic type one, and he's an industrial designer. And basically, um, him and his brother invited me to join an early crew of like an early team of folks that were kind of thinking about a new glucose monitor. And my my friend mm -hmm. again with diabetes, he was 
uh, he had this idea of a better glucose monitor, and uh, that's kind of how we how we started. So uh, that's how I ended up in diabetes, even though my background is more in uh, in yep. the IT realm. And and what were I mean some of the lessons learned because you were one of the co-founders early on. What were some of the key lessons learned? I mean, it, it also is a I think even back then was already a crowded market, right? So how do you, you know, what did you pick up out of that? Because I think as we transition into Mero in a bit, um, also while the need is there, pretty crowded market, uh, but let's stick with the diabetes and maybe some of the lessons learned in, in, in that crowded space. Yeah, so there's there's many things there. I mean, one thing, I guess we were building a new kind of glucose monitor, which solved some of the convenience problems for uh, frequently measuring diabetics. So we had a fully integrated monitor, which included the lancing device that, the, you know, the, the needle to prick, prick the finger or prick your finger. And then uh, also like a cartridge of test strips for uh, the actual blood testing. So we've had integrated everything into a one like really cool looking uh, consumer looking kind of a, a box, it, you know, or a case. Mm -hmm. And it didn't look like a medical device per se. So it was just more like a design and, and uh, usability and a mechanical innovation. And in that sense, like it, it actually, it had a market uh, with like frequently measuring diabetics, like type ones and some type twos who were on, on insulin, like, I don't know, 10, 20% of type twos. And uh, so we actually found a found a pretty good niche, uh, which is still a fairly big niche. And we didn't have a lot of competition in that, that niche. Uh, there's CGM for sure and other things. Right. But then uh, again, a lot of CGMs weren't that good back then. So a lot of people were using finger pricks and it's, you know, also was a lot cheaper and things like this. But I think one kind of uh, an important lesson was that coming from Finland with that company, we were really struggling to raise enough capital to really grow the company. It was, you know, we were product, like right. we were producing medical devices in China and in Korea, we had like facilities and production uh, partners. So it was just like super capital intensive. And, and back then Finland didn't like have yet a lot of venture capital. So, uh, so that was a big struggle for us. We just always couldn't, you know, we never could, could raise enough capital to like really scale the whole business. And eventually that's why we sold it to, uh, one of our Korean partners who had like much better scale right. already. Um, the other other thing was that the um, I think kind of communicating the value prop uh, was also also not easy um, because it, again people are so used to using the uh, the traditional devices and traditional tools that that's another so like um, another challenge that we also faced in the market and I think um, yeah I mean like I think yeah one, third one would have been the fact that we had our HQ in Finland and in Helsinki and, and it was really hard to recruit all the talent that we needed because like Finland just did not have uh, like most of these right. roles or most of these kinds of people because, you know, there no one had ever built anything like this out of Finland. So there was just no people in, in there. So we hired people from other European countries and, and things like these. So I think that company would have done a, a much, much better if had we founded it in the U.S., and that's that's why I actually eventually like ended up founding Merrill Health uh, in the yeah. U.S. as a U.S. company. That th that was sort of my next question. So let's you know I would love to sort of transition into the Merrill Health journey. Um, uh, part of the reason why I asked you the question on because I think knowing that you, I think you're sitting in U.S. now, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, so you yes. founded the company. Uh, majority of the market is in U.S., but you know maybe rewind back and again while. Uh, you know, while the company was started out of a personal pain, right, um, 
it's also is a very crowded market. Yes, the demand is, I think, increasing even more so than ever uh, before. But um, maybe just walk us through that journey of founding it, some of those lessons learned already. Uh, and then I'll, you know, I'll dive in and interrupt rudely as I always do. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So there's there's definitely like a few key key lessons. So when I came into the mental health care space, I, I didn't know too much. So uh, I first like spent a lot of my a lot of my time for the first couple of years just talking to like reading research, uh, reading like clinical manuals, uh, talking to doctors, talking to professors, and just really wanted to understand like what what's working and what is not working in mental health care. And what I found was pretty, uh, pretty kind of interesting. Like I, I came from diabetes, so I knew that like diabetes management, diabetes care, you know, it's like pretty effective, but it's not like yeah. that great. Like if you look at the out outcomes on a population level, they aren't like really that great, um, but it was still okay. When I came to mental health care, I realized, first of all, that access, of course, is like a massive problem. There's like less than half the people who need care when they need care, they don't, they don't get it. Yep. Or then, um, you know, that's, that's a struggle. We don't have enough providers, things like these. But I think the other even more fundamental problem is that there's also, uh, we're trying to treat mental illnesses in a way that they are merely psychological problems, which they're not. They're also biological, physiological based problems. And, and that has led us down the path where we try to treat everything with like as a brain disorder or as a, like a psychological disorder. Uh, where and, and that's kind of like, you know, we kind of try to do CVT with everyone and we try to do like antidepressants with everyone. And, and that thing, you know, when I looked into the research, what I realized quite quickly was that actually, you know, if you really look at the data, like real world data, like what's actually happening out there with tens of thousands mm -hmm. of people in America and in other countries, you can see that therapy works for maybe 40 percent of people. Like if you have clinical depression or clinical anxiety, Maybe 40% of people who do like talk therapy will actually get better and stay better. And then if you look at antidepressants, like if you only get a prescription drug, like any antidepressants, and you go through like several, only like 20 to 30% actually really get better long term, even less than that, actually. So I was like so surprised that like, is this the best we have? Like this right. is the best we have uh, to give people this massive global problem and, and we have nothing better. So then I was like, uh, just like even more inspired to dig deeper. And, and we developed and built Marrow Health to be a mind and body integrating <laughs> intervention it, that, that is not just addressing like the psychological aspects, although they're very important aspects. I, I've done therapy yep. myself and I, I benefited tremendously, but we built in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, and more like psychological aspects. But we also built in food and mood, which is like a very integral piece. Then uh, sleep sleep hygiene, sleep coaching, because sleep uh, problems affect roughly 90% of people with mental health challenges. Yeah. And then uh, we also like go into some exercise, some yoga, just some recommendations on, on that side of the, the equation. And then finally, we built in biofeedback, uh, which is a wearable device for getting instant feedback on deep breathing practices to regulate the nervous system and your stress system. So um these are like kind of like the holistic holistic or integrated components that we built into one intervention that is supported by a therapist, by coaches, by care coordinators, even by psychiatrists. And we deliver this as a continuous care solution, as a tech-enabled service, um, you know, now throughout the country. So that's that's kind of like our key differentiator is the, the, the mind and body approach. And then I guess, you know, finally, 
people ask us like, well, is that like, does it really work? Like, is it really good? So we've done a lot of research with Stanford, Harvard, with others, more than 10 published clinical studies, including randomized control trials. And, and it works much better than standard of care. Like we're seeing two to three times better results, uh, especially over long-term when we, we've right. published our one-year data already. So what we're seeing is that people actually benefit uh, much, much more on average um, against like if we want to compare against like standard of care today. And, you know, I, I appreciate you diving into the differentiation because, you know, if you look on the market, I mean, there are platforms, there's, again, I, I'm not going to start mentioning the names. I think many of the listeners here know, know some of, uh, you know, quote unquote competition, you know, and, and everywhere you hear from across the board, different ages, you know, words stressed, uh, you know, I'm feeling anxiety left and right, right? And then the question becomes then, there's just not enough supply, right? And supply oh. of therapists, um, uh, and, and yeah, I'll just, I'll just pause there, right? I, so how, how's that even working in the marketplace? Because I feel like uh, everybody around um, has challenges, right? We all do. Yeah, yeah, important, important point. So that's one thing we kind of also realized early on that there's a huge uh, supply uh, problem in the market. And, and then basically we signed our intervention to be, like I mentioned, like it's a continuous care intervention. And what it actually means is that we don't uh, put that much emphasis on just doing face-to-face -face calls. So, yep. you know, let's think about it from like first principles. Like if you are a provider, how many, how many, how many hours a day you have time to work? Maybe like, I don't know, eight, let's say eight hours. So how many calls can you do in eight hours? Maybe six, maybe seven. I don't know. You got to do your notes and everything else in between. But, and, but I, I would argue, maybe even add to it, just sorry to interrupt here, but I would add yeah, to no, it. No. And we've seen this even with non-clinical coaching, right? At, at your coach is this work is so heavy, right? I mean, this is yeah. intense work working with individuals through this process. And I would argue that while, yes, it's a job. Yes, you need to, I, I think, stretching those hours and your own, I mean, you know, therapists are also human beings that need a break yeah. and need to offload. So I, I just wanted to inter interject here a little bit on this, but. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Like, absolutely uh, spot on because like, it's not feasible for anyone to do like that many a day. So that creates a huge problem. Like, I mean, if you have limited number of providers and there's a huge surge in demand, um, so you, you, there's no way you can meet the demand with, with the number of providers. Like, I think there's the providers we have today in the US, even including coaches, it's like 300,000, including all the therapists and coaches in the United States. Uh, and coaches mean mental health, like wellness coaches that can yeah, be mental yeah. health or behavioral yeah. health coaches. So yeah. it, it's just like, that's just not enough for anything. Like that's not even meeting half of the demand. Um, so the problem is there, like we all know it, um, but we kind of like came, came at it from a different perspective where um, we kind of built this intervention in a way that like, there's gotta be a way to get people to um, kind of engage with, with like content and with practices, which will eventually help them change behavior and help them get better um, without like doing face-to-face -face calls every week. Like that's just not scalable. Like even if we had only coaches, we have therapists and coaches, but if we only had coaches, that still wouldn't be scalable because there's not enough mm -hmm. coaches. So then we kind of designed this, this different model, which we call the continuous remote care model, where a therapist will work with a patient uh, or with a member uh, on average, like for, you know, roughly three hours over the course of our intervention. 
while being able to have the patient or the member uh, kind of dedicate more than, well, we're now between 12 to 15 hours on average on the patient yep. side. So like us spending like few hours with a the therapist will get like additional 12 hours time committed by the patient on average throughout 12 weeks. And, and this is possible because of like creating a very engaged model where you first meet with your provider and you kind of build that rapport and then you get a customized plan for your, you know, against your needs um, um, kind of customized by your provider and by the system. And then basically you go through this more of a programmatic curriculum in app, which is gamified, which is like gives you feedback. And, and then where the same therapist is in the chat, there's a chat in there. So the same therapist is in the chat, like proactively nudging and pinging you, but not spending a lot of time on average. Right. Like it could be like one minute here, one minute there, like five minutes there. And just like giving you different kudos and uh, like hearts and thumbs up and things like these against your, you know, different practices or completed mindfulness practices or journaling or CBT, um, video lessons, things like these. So it's kind of like a, this immersive experience, which is more like a programmatic or more of productized experience. And we've been able to get this leverage with this model where a provider spends way less time and they can treat a lot more patients. So to give you some numbers, our provider, like full-time equivalent provider, can work with like 120 to 150 simultaneously, right. like a caseload of 120 to 150. And in normal face-to-face -face, uh, telehealth or brick-and-mortar, yep. that's maybe like 25 to 50. Yep. yep, yep. So that's kind of the leverage we're able to achieve. And that's been our approach, like how to tackle all this. And and actually curious because, you know, we, we also get asked this question and have to explain a lot. You know, I think coaching – just the word coaching has meant so many different things in the world, right? There's executive coaching, there's, you know, fitness coaching, there's, you know, when we refer to health and wellness coaching or behavior health coaching, um, you know, we sort of describe this as kind of non-clinical psychotherapy, you know, using some of the similar techniques as therapists do, but again, it's non-clinical. Mm -hmm. How do you guys look at coaches and how do they work with therapists together? Yeah, so we have a, uh, we actually have like a clear cut clinical pathway and then a subclinical pathway. Uh, what I mean by that, we have a 12 week um, therapy program, which is led by a therapist and supported by care coordinators and psychiatrists if needed. And then we have a coach led, like more like a preventative track, more like a resiliency program, which mm -hmm. is an eight week program. And, and so they're actually like very separate from each other. And our coaches, may refer to the therapy program and the therapist may refer Got to the it. coaching program, but they don't like work at the same time with the same patient. Got it. It, it. That's interesting because at some point, right. I mean, we kind of always say you need a human being along your health journey, but you need different roles through that journey. And so for lack of a better term, you could graduate to more of a preventative program, main, maintenance, right. Or go into mm -hmm. uh, from an escalation perspective. Um, exactly. Awesome. Um, listen, um, I'd love to get your thoughts. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff going on, yes, in mental health, but also th broadly in digital health. Um, and before you joined in and I let you in, Jim had his own minute or so on it, um, you know, from market dynamics, investment cycles, uh, kind of where do you see digital health broadly going? <laughs> Tough one. Uh, I think I think there's uh, a bit of a backlash now with like the pair thing and like some 
you know, some challenges after the pandemic, um, you know, after the funding kind of dried up recently or in the recent couple of years um, after the big boom. So I think there's some of these, uh, some of these challenges, but I think, um, I think there's like a, kind of like a separating the wheat from the chaff phenomena going on here. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is when I work with the payers or when we work with the payers and, and employers, um, it's not that they wouldn't have need for mental health care. Like I, they actually, and I think you already alluded to this earlier, that they actually have even more need than even, well, at least as much as they had during the pandemic. We're seeing like a lot of need. Uh, but the, the thing is that they are becoming much more now selective on like what kinds of providers or solutions do they really want to work with. So I think, uh, I think what's happening on a broader basis is that the industry is becoming more realistic and more careful in like not just working with anything and every everyone at the same time which happened during the pandemic they were just you know pretty much like bringing in whatever was available to meet the demand and just like everyone was a, a bit in a bit of a panic yeah. at that time but now it's becoming more like hey let's really like find out like what is really working and what is not working and let's get rid of what is not working so i think to some extent um you know there's this phenomenon also like relates to pair situation. It relates yeah. to maybe some of the other things with like, um, you know, uh, what's been happening with some other providers in the market, some of the um, Senate or some of the inquiries by the, um, um, you know, some of the administrations out there. Um, so, I mean, I think there's going to be this kind of a phenomenon going on in the next few years where there's, if you're really good and you're de really delivering good care, high quality care, uh, at scale, then there's going to be like plenty of work work to do. But then again, uh, there are there are maybe you know different players that are are not yeah. so well geared for for that. So I think that's going to happen. And then again, the financial market, what's happening? Well, I I fairly actively talk to different uh, investors, and I think at least some investors that I've recently talked to are seeing that there's a bit of a, a bit of an improvement in in the market conditions now, and there's a bit more appetite for investments. Uh, I think the market is like slightly recovering from the the worst bottom, uh, like a, you know maybe a year yeah. ago. Uh, but but it, you know to be seen what's going to happen. I don't know more about that. Yeah, listen, I, I think that's one one key thing about human beings and back to you know resilience, right? Uh, from that perspective, um, no matter what hits you, we all try to correct right the course and and mm -hmm. stay resilient. And and that goes for investors as well, right? I mean, I think there's still quite a bit of dry powder, but some of the fundamentals are starting to play in versus blitz scaling at all costs, right? So um, no, thank you. Thank you for that. So um, look, um, Jim is now, we're, we're gonna try to continue experimenting this. Jim is gonna now ask his famous last question of the podcast. So uh, <laughs> Jim, go ahead. So Christian, I Let's imagine yourself for a moment um, coming out of you're in California and you're walking out of a Y Combinator pitch session um, after you've just had you, you're talking about the amazing success uh, that Maru Health has achieved over the years and and all the young aspiring entrepreneurs from Y Combinator are listening to you and and you see one in the back and there he's um, he's eating a piece of fruit. And he, as you come off the stage, he comes running over to you and you realize it's a, it's a, it's a young Finishman, an entrepreneur. And he looks at you and he says, you know, like my, my new mental health digital app technology company has just been accepted into Y Combinator. And I, I couldn't be more than excited. And, and I watched your journey. What's that one piece of advice you would give that, 
young version of yourself as they're embarking on their Y Combinator journey. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> One piece of advice. <clears throat> I think the, the biggest learning that I've learned myself during my you know, last, whatever, 15 years being a, being a founder uh, is that um, you got to start everything with your values. Like um, what I mean by that is that like when you're founding a company, you're building a team. Um, what I what I did with Merrill Health, what we did with Merrill Health with my co-founders and what I always advise people to do if they're starting their, their journey is to in the beginning, like really think through like what are your values? What are your founding team's shared values? And and what are the, the ways how you want to work? Like what are your like traits and what do you value uh, with people working in your core team? And really clearly like setting those values and then uh, really like working with the values to adhere and make your decisions based on these values. Like if your value is transparency, then you've got to make decisions that support transparency within your organization. Or if your value is like um, customer first, then you really got to go you know, above and beyond to meet that value of customer first. And, and I think that was the most fundamental thing because when I did that with Merrill Health uh, versus I had not done that with my, my earlier ventures, um, the, the change has been very, very positive. I mean, there's a very cohesive and clear culture at Merrill Health where we, you know, work with our values and they're like very, very well known and appreciated by our people. And we use these values as kind of reflectors for our decision-making and how we treat other people, how we work together, uh, what what do we value, who gets hired, who gets fired, things like these. Yeah. So I think that's extremely important because it creates so much cohesion. And with cohesion, you create so much more momentum and, and you can penetrate through like even brick walls, whatever. If you really have a have a great, like aligned team that is working towards the same goals with the same values. Christian, thank you very much. And thank you for talking to a robot, Jim, by the way. I don't know how what your experience was. <laughs> we didn't even get to good, some of those good. topics, but 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 that was me messing around and we are meticulously unproduced. So, uh, you know, he, here it is. But uh, listen, I appreciate your time. Uh, this was fun for me. Uh, and for our listeners and viewers, uh, hit subscribe, pass it on and see you next week. Thanks so much.